Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, March 22nd, we are studying Luke chapter 18, verses 15 to 30. Riches will not get you into the kingdom of God. In fact, riches make it more difficult, Jesus says. Jesus teaches that only those who receive the kingdom of God like a child will enter it. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Adam Philippek. Pastor Philippek serves at Holy Cross and Emmanuel Lutheran Churches, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. Pastor Philippek, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you, Pastor Apple. Good to be with you, and greetings to our listeners in the name of our crucified, risen, reigning Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who was, who is, and who is to come. As we get started this morning, Pastor Philippek, give us some context. We're in the middle of Luke 18 today. What do we need to know that will help us with the text for today? Absolutely. So in the previous text, Luke 18, 9 to 14 specifically, we recently studied the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. It might seem strange then to move from a tax collector who people really don't like, I mean, likes to have their taxes collected, uh, then to, to children who people tend to like a lot. It seems sort of a strange comparison. I mean, how are tax collectors and children alike? I mean, what? But in order to answer the question, we need to keep in mind what the context of that parable actually is. First, Jesus told us this parable because there were in verse 9, some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and they treated others, therefore, with contempt. And in this parable, he describes then two men, a Pharisee, a tax collector, both of which go to the temple to pray. And the content of their prayers couldn't be more different. I mean, the Pharisee's prayer reflects that he does indeed trust himself for his own righteousness. He praises God for his own self-righteousness. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes to, to all that I get. He might as well just have prayed, Pastor Apple. Lord, I thank you. I'm awesome. Because unlike everyone else, ah, oh, well, you know, I follow the law perfectly. I do all that is commanded with me of me. I am without sin. But unlike the Pharisee, the tax collector's prayer is wholly different. All the tax collector could do is stand at a distance. He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. No, he, he looked down in guilt and shame and cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The tax collector's prayer is not one of self-dependency or self-righteousness. The tax collector's prayer is a prayer of utter repentance and utter dependency upon God and God alone to be who he is and to give to him what he promises. That is God's own righteousness. And it is the tax collector then that we find out at the end of the parable, not the Pharisee who is right in God's eyes. That is, he is declared righteous, 
holy, perfect, innocent, reconciled to God because the tax collector cries out to God in repentance and faith and is utterly dependent upon God alone for his righteousness where the Pharisee is not. This parable then is is told to answer that question that Jesus posed even before it in verse number eight. When the son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? And what we saw yesterday was part one of the answer. And that part one looks like this. Yes, he will find faith, but he will find faith in the most unlikely of place, a tax collector. Part two of Jesus's answer is today's text. It will answer even more fully that question. So as we study the word of Christ today, we need to keep in mind both Jesus's question, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? And his first answer, yes, in an unlikely place, a tax collector. Well, and and just like yesterday's answer was an unlikely place, the tax collector where he will find faith, there was also an unlikely place where he didn't find that faith, which was in that Pharisee. So there's a there's a two-part answer to that that we saw yesterday. And I think we're going to get that two-part answer again today. An unlikely place where Jesus will find faith and an unlikely place where he's not going to find faith. In the place where he does find faith, I'm going to think, oh, that's not where I was thinking. And in the place where he doesn't find faith, I thought he might have found it there, but he won't. So a bit of unexpected news on both sides of that coin. We're in Luke 18, beginning at verse 15, a short episode to begin this text. Now they were bringing even infants to him, to Jesus, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. That's the first three verses of our text today. That's Luke 18, verses 15 to 17. So yesterday's text, we had a tax collector, we had a Pharisee. Today's text starts off with kids. Tell us about kids, even infants in this text, Pastor Philippek. Tell us about these kids. Absolutely. So during the same time that the parable is being told by Jesus, indeed, as Jesus himself is journeying to the cross to Jerusalem in all humility, bearing our own sins upon his shoulders. There are some people, and I would presume their parents, though the text doesn't actually specifically say, but there are some who are bringing children, and not just children, like you said moments ago, infants, to Jesus, that he may lay his hands on them and that they might participate in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not a what? Sometimes when we think of the kingdom of God, we think, you know, heaven and clouds and floating. No, the kingdom of God is a who. It's not what's the kingdom of God, who is the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is Jesus, the reign of God coming near to Jesus, to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to calm creation that's gone awry, to even undo death. So the kingdom is Jesus. And the parents are bringing these children, these infants to Jesus, that he may lay his hands on them, that they might participate in the kingdom. And that's rather shocking to the disciples. And in the ancient world, it would be to those who are viewing them, because children 
What are they? What are infants that matter, for that matter in the ancient world? Yeah, they are gifts from God. We've heard that all over the place in the Psalms, true, but they're weak. They're not able to do the same amount of grueling physical labor as an adult. They have no social status, if any, no influence. Children are without knowledge and without understanding. Yeah, any parent, any grandparent knows this all too well. I mean, how many times have we had to tell our son, our daughter, our grandchild, don't touch the hot stuff. Don't stick anything to an electric outlet. Don't put that in your mouth. Even, even how to use the bathroom and clean themselves when they're done, right? Children, they are without understanding. That's why God commands us in scriptures to train them up in the way that they should go so that when they are old, they do not depart from that teaching. So children then, as we keep thinking about this, children, you know, they can't care for themselves. They can't provide for themselves. They're utterly dependent upon their parents for food, for a place to live, for heat, for protection, for clothes, you name it, completely and utterly dependent. They need someone to help them. And knowing this, we can now begin to see the connection between the tax collector and the previous in the previous narrative and the children in today's narrative. And the connection is verse 14 from yesterday's text where Jesus says, I tell you, this man, that is the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. That is the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The tax collector, unlike the Pharisee, is in a state of humility. He confesses that he is a sinner. He readily confesses, I can't fix myself. I can't fix my life. I can't make things better. I can't make my problems go away. I need someone. I need a savior. I need someone to protect me, to forgive me, to save me from my sin. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the same posture of humility, of utter and complete dependence upon someone else that the tax collector exhibits is easily, easily and clearly seen in infants. Infants are helpless and needy. They can't even walk to Jesus. They need to be carried to Jesus. They too need someone to help them, to love them, to care for them, to protect them, to forgive them, to save them. Infants, young children, if you will, Pastor Apple, they are like the epitome, the icon, the instantiation, whatever word you want to use, of helplessness and utter dependence. Or in a word, they are the image, icon, instantiation of humility. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to your cross I cling. And with this in mind, Jesus' rebuke of his disciples makes a whole lot more sense for the disciples are trying to prevent these little ones from entering into Jesus's presence, the very kingdom of God. And by doing so, they are like the Pharisee. What the Pharisee did to the tax collector, the disciples are doing to the children. They are proclaiming, in essence, that they are outside the kingdom of God and they cannot enter it. But Jesus says otherwise. He rebukes them. He essentially tells them to stop acting like the Pharisee disciples because the Pharisee, in his ignorance, sinful ignorance and sinful self-righteousness, was the one who was actually shown to be outside the kingdom of God and not the tax collector. 
And unless the disciples turn from their sinful ignorance and arrogance, they, like the Pharisee, will never enter the kingdom of God. They will be cast into the outer fire and darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, just like the Pharisee. But the tax collector and the children, those unlikely too, they will enter into the kingdom of God, into eternal life with their eternal Lord and Savior, whom they are utterly dependent upon. Jesus and him alone. The point then of this section, Pastor Apple, is if you approach Jesus with something in your hands, your own works, your own skills, your own abilities, your own righteousness. Hey, look at how great I am, God. I deserve to get into heaven. I am awesome. Thank you, Lord, that I am who I am and not like all these people. Rather than approaching like the tax collectors and infants, are utterly dependent. If you approach like the Pharisee, then you will receive nothing but judgment. But if you approach like the tax collector and the infants, then you will receive everything God has to give. Forgiveness of sins, salvation, and eternal life with him in his kingdom that has no end. And finally then, we arrive sort of at that second part of the answer to the question, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And the full answer is, yeah, he will find faith on earth, earth, but in the most unlikely of places. You'd expect to find it in the Pharisee and the disciples, but actually where it is being found here and now as the kingdom of God is present in the flesh of Jesus is in a tax collector and an infant. Pastor Philippek, this this text is often associated with holy baptism. I think in in our baptismal rite, we usually read the parallel text from Mark chapter ten, but it's very close. Now, what is what does this text have to do with baptism? Whether it is an infant or an adult, we read it either way. What does this text have to do with baptism? Sure, and the first answer that I can give won't make sense, and then I'll backtrack. <laughs> in essence, nothing, because <laughs> the text doesn't mention baptism. All right, now I'll backtrack. But in essence as well, everything, because baptism is nothing less than the kingdom of God coming to an individual person. Baptism is God coming and through the mouth of his chosen instruments, the hands and feet of his pastor, speaking his holy word and placing his name and his mark of the cross on the forehead and on the heart of the person. God actually physically touching and speaking to that individual person who is being baptized, that they may enter into the kingdom of God, that they may die with Christ and rise to the newness of life with him, that they may be joined to Jesus so that as the Father sent the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit, now in baptism, that Holy Spirit is joining us to the Son through that word and that water that we, by the Son, might be reconciled to the Father. So to exclude someone is actually to go against the command of our Lord, not just simply the command, no, but the word of Christ, Christ himself in the flesh, who welcomes adults, yes, children, yes, young children, yes, infants, yes. This harkens back to Acts 2, where 
Many after Pentecost are being baptized, and this promise is for you, for your children, for all who are far off. So this Jesus is for everybody. And the reason this gets associated with baptism is because there in the waters of baptism, the baptismal catechumen is being joined to Christ and entering into a life of Christ, a kingdom of God, Jesus Christ, who has the beginning here with that individual in the waters of baptism, but once marked with the cross, that individual's life in Christ will never end. Not until that great and glorious day when they're by the sound of the trumpet with him in paradise. And even then, we just live with Christ. Our life in Christ never ends. I appreciate that you said at the outset, you know, technically, this text doesn't say anything about baptism in particular. I've Because I've heard that used, you know, you, you Lutherans, you baptize your babies and you talk about Jesus welcoming the little children. Well, he doesn't baptize them there, so that can't be about baptism. I've heard that, but I appreciate the way that you connected it to baptism and that entrance into the kingdom of God. And while it is true that, yes, Jesus does not baptize these children who come to him, to to think that Jesus actually rebukes his disciples here for not letting the children come to him, to think then that, well, we shouldn't let children be baptized when we know that baptism is the Lord welcoming that person into his kingdom. It just, it's so inconsistent if we're going to reject infant baptism and yet try to hold onto this text. I don't know how we can do it. So I baptize your babies, right? And baptize all who are unbaptized, as Jesus says, baptize all nations. So I, I appreciate the way that you connected those two things for us. Any more thoughts on that section of the text before we move on to the next? Just holding intention that welcoming of people into the kingdom of God, who is Jesus? Because this is this theme is going to run through the next text. That's right. That's right. The kingdom who is Jesus. And I appreciate the way you're phrasing that too. It reminds me of, you know, going back in some of these sections of Jesus teaching as he's on his way to Jerusalem, all the way back in chapter 17, when the Pharisees were wondering about when the kingdom of God comes, Jesus says the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, referring there to himself. He's here. So the kingdom is here. That theme is still carrying on into Luke chapter 18. So we pick that up as now a ruler, a rich ruler, comes to Jesus to encounter the kingdom. And we'll see if he has this faith that Jesus is looking for. So we're now in Luke 18, verse 18. And a ruler asked him, Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have, and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children 
for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. That's the rest of our text. That is Luke 18, verses 18 to 30. So, Pastor Philip, again, just tracing the various characters here in Luke 18, we had a tax collector and a Pharisee yesterday. We've had infants in our text so far, and now we've got a rich ruler. How does he fit into all this? Absolutely. And the key is critically listening to the rich, young ruler's response to everything, to everything that he asked Jesus and then everything that he says in response to Jesus. And when you do that, you begin to realize that just like the Pharisee in the parable and just like the disciples, his posture is not one of humility. His posture is one of self-righteousness and self-dependency. He trusts in himself for his own righteousness to go back to all that was talked about in verse 8. So this rich young ruler thinks he knows. And this is very clear when he addresses Jesus. Good teacher. See, I, I know who you are, Jesus. You're, you're a good teacher. I, I've seen you all about it. I've heard things. You're a good teacher. He thinks he knows who Jesus is, but Jesus' words reveal he has no clue. Why do you call me good? <clears throat> no one is good except God alone. Hint, hint, hint. I'm more than a teacher here, buddy. Come on. So he thinks he knows. He knows nothing. And he also thinks that he's kept the commandments. And notice how Jesus gives him the second table of the law that all has to do with my relationship to my neighbor primarily and then secondarily my relationship to God. He weighs heavy on the things that this rich young ruler takes great pride in. So he lists some commandments, adultery, murder, false witness, honor your father and your mother, to which not only does the rich young ruler think he knows, but he thinks he's done all things well. His pompous response, all these I've kept from my youth. He knows nothing because he knows not the word of Christ and Christ himself. So not only why do you call me good, but then Jesus gets into his response about you lack one thing. But before we get to any of that, let us be clear what he is saying. All these I've kept from my youth, to put it in the Sermon on the Mount terms that Jesus said, not only you know in Luke, but in Matthew as well, 548, Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Like the Pharisee, this rich young ruler thinks just that. He is perfect. He's kept all the commandments. He's done it all. He has not sinned. And yet Jesus has another word for him. But before we get to that other word of Jesus, and I think we'll pick that up on the other side of the break, I just want to make sure we understand what Jesus is up to here in this first response. As you said, there seems to be more that's going on then meets the eye when he first questions that word good pay attention buddy if you're going to call me good then what are you going to really confess about me he's inviting this man to see him as more than just a teacher but to actually see him as god and then all that entails with it and then to talk a little bit more about the commandments that jesus lists one of the things that probably strikes us is that jesus 
misses some of them. He leaves some of them out. In particular, you mentioned the first table of the law is entirely missing from Jesus' answer, the commandments that teach us how to love God. Also missing from his answer, and I think this might be significant as well, are the commandments about coveting. That also is missing, which the coveting commandments tie in very closely to the first commandment and and who your God actually is. It, it seems like what Jesus is doing, even in his initial answer, before he's going to pound a little harder on this man's heart in the rest of his answer, is he's he's inviting this man to actually take a good look at his life and see what he has kept. And he's already starting to point out some of the places where this man has some some blind spots. Can you talk a little bit more about that as we move into our break here in about two minutes? Absolutely. So the idea that he's kept everything does revolve around the relationship with the neighbor and what is eclipsed in the first table and what is eclipsed in the second table in the covetings actually relate to the intimate connection between the individual person and God himself. What do you love? Where's your heart at? What drives you throughout any given moment of any given day? What do you spend your time? What do you spend your thoughts? What do you spend your whole day around? And that coveting aspect gets back to the first part because, as we'll see, there's a lot in that that has to do with what Luther will call and what others before him have called God. See, there, whether, whether we acknowledge this or not as a world Everybody has something that they trust in. Everybody has something they believe in. Everybody has something that they look to for good, for support, for help, for comfort, for purpose, for meaning in life. And like fools um, <laughs> who build their barn, or maybe I'll do all that, mm-hmm. uh, who build their barns because they have so much and say, self, I will enjoy everything. That Wealth and that riches and the things that we love in this world can melt away and are insufficient. Everybody has something that they love and trust in. The question is not if we have a God, but what God do we worship? The one true God or is it God of money or health or wealth or sports or entertainment or all kinds of other things? And the first table of the law and those covenant commandments turn our attention to that. And that's where Jesus is headed. Yeah, that's a fantastic answer, Pastor Philippek. And the way that you you know, bring up Luther with his talk about what a God is, I think really helps to to draw together what Jesus is doing here in both of the things that he says. He's inviting this man to think about who really is his God and what does that have to do with getting eternal life. And we're going to keep meditating upon that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We are studying Luke chapter 18 with Pastor Adam Philippek. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. 
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, March 22nd. We're studying Luke chapter 18, verses 15 to 30 with Pastor Adam Filipek. He serves at Holy Cross and Emmanuel Lutheran Churches, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. Pastor Filipek, prior to the break, we were looking at Jesus' interaction with this rich young ruler who has come to Jesus, calling him a good teacher, wondering what he has to do with to inherit eternal life. He is coming like the Pharisee in the parable Jesus tell. He comes with his own righteousness. Jesus is seeking to knock that righteousness out of his hand so that he would come to the kingdom in humility like a child. As Jesus continues that task, he then responds to this rich young ruler saying, you need to do one more thing, buddy. Go and sell everything you have, distribute it to the poor, then you'll have the treasure in heaven and you can come follow me. What's Jesus saying with this? Is he telling this man he needs to do something to inherit eternal life or is there something else going on? That is a great question because this is so misunderstood and so misused. And it takes a very careful reading of the text. Otherwise, you end up sounding like Jesus is purporting what he has just spoken against, which is self-righteousness. See, I've sold everything and now I've done it and here we go. But sell everything that you have, distribute it to the poor. You will have your treasure in heaven. Come follow me. The biggest emphasis is on what we had said right before the break, the following of Jesus, the true kingdom of God in the flesh, God made manifest, God in the flesh. And so it's clear, it becomes very clear by you lack one thing and this word, what is going on with this rich young ruler? He is showing the rich young ruler that he actually lacks the posture of humility. He has not kept all the commandments. He is like the Pharisee in the previous parable. He thinks he has no sin. So Jesus gives him a rather hard word of law. Sell everything? That's not loving. That's a hard word of law. And yet, I'll bring Mark into this just a little bit. St. Mark adds this detail. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And so this, this word is actually loving because Jesus cares about this man's posture. God desires all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So Jesus will not leave him in his signer, sinful ignorance and his self-absorption and idolatry. So though he thinks he has no sin, Jesus speaks this word of law, so that through Jesus's word, this rich man might actually realize that he has sinned, that he has not kept the law perfectly. He is not perfect. He has broken the first commandment. He has another God, something that he cares more about in this life. And he is actually in need then. The rich young ruler is in need of a savior. He needs someone to rescue him. He needs someone to care for him. He needs someone to protect him, to forgive him and save him. So the point is not that by virtue of selling possessions, you in fact can earn heaven. Though that has been preached by many people. The point of this is to simply set before his eyes, and it's a twofold point, his sin. To interpret it some way that by virtue of selling possessions, you earn heaven is to interpret the text as Jesus's own encouragement towards self-righteousness. Um, do this and then you can be confident you've earned heaven and, and you're, you've done it. Good job. You're, 
by yourself and on your own. You can't really interpret those words that way when all of this parable is framed in the context of eight and nine, and the context of nine in 18 is all about the ones who trust in themselves for their own righteousness. So to understand that way would be sort of antithetical to the text, against it. So the way that Jesus' statement is to be understood in this context, then, is a call to repentance and faith first and foremost. That is to say, no, dear, rich, young ruler, you are not perfect. You need a savior. Let go of your idolatry. Let go of your love of money. Get rid of it. Love me instead. Follow me. God in the flesh. The kingdom has come near to you to save you from your sins. And you will have, in me, you will have your eternal treasure. You will have heaven. You will have eternity with me in my kingdom. Do not be like the rich fool who sought to tear down his store barns and build larger ones, thinking that he had enough. Yeah, we encountered that back in Luke chapter 12. He lost it all in a moment. In a twinkling of an eye, he was trusting in his stuff, and it was ripped away from him that very night by the cold hand of death. Don't lay up treasures for yourself. Be rich toward God. Be utterly dependent upon me, Jesus invites him. Upon my Father who sent me, Jesus invites him. Don't, don't worry about all the stuff, the clothes, the food, so on and so forth. To, to put it in Luke 12's context, seek first the kingdom of God. And all that stuff will be added unto you because your heavenly Father knows what you need and he freely gives it to you. This is the first part of this. Now, if I stop here, I miss also a key thing that Jesus is doing. But this is the chief and first part of it, the call to repentance and faith. Once I understand this, then in this context, sell everything can also be seen as a sign of the fruits of repentance of faith, of a concrete, tangible evidence before the world that the rich man does not cling to the stuff, but rather clings to Jesus. He loves him more than he loves his stuff. And Understood that way then, now with a call to repentance and this man actually having faith and the selling everything being a fruit of repentance, then you could easily see this text in line with James, and you should. From James chapter 2, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. It strikes me that just coming up in a a few texts, and I don't want to steal too much thunder, but you, we do encounter in Luke 19, a rich man who happens to be a tax collector. It's interesting how those two things <laughs> go together in Zacchaeus, who, who does, I mean, he's got this humility. He's also got the riches and then he ends up selling riches and gives them away. And so I appreciate the way that you've explained that because I think it, it protects us from two dangers. One would be the danger of interpreting this text in the way of self-righteousness, as you said, as long as I meet this threshold of selling however many goods it is necessary to get into the kingdom, I'm good in some sort of mechanical way of, of thinking about it, that I did it. It protects from that. But then when you connected, connected this text to James, it also prevents us from you know, hearing that first way of thinking and thinking, oh, well, then how many riches I accumulate doesn't really matter. And I can keep building my barns as long as I don't trust in them. And I mean, I think I think you you help us avoid both ways of thinking, both ways of, of reading Jesus words incorrectly. I think that that relates to the way Jesus then responds. So Jesus has 
has called this rich young ruler to himself, to repentance and faith in a couple of ways, he reacts in sadness. That's what Luke says, because he is very rich. Jesus sees that and he responds and it kind of doubles down on it when it comes to this wealth. And he talks about the danger of wealth and how it makes it difficult to get into the kingdom of God. He even uses this very famous comparison about a camel going through the eye of, of the needle. Take us into this next interaction between the rich young ruler and Jesus. Absolutely. So there are two responses to the word of God. One is repentance and faith, the work of the Holy Spirit by which the word and the spirit produce that in the individual. And the other one is to harden your heart against that. And that's what we see with the rich young ruler. When Jesus invites him and calls him to repentance and to follow him, he hears these things and he despairs. He still loves his stuff. He still has another God. He won't give it up. He won't love Jesus. He won't see his need for Jesus because that will cost him far too much worth in his eyes. But, you know, you're supposed to be rich toward God, not laying up treasures in heaven. This man would rather lay up his treasures in heaven than to cling to Christ and receive everything, the riches of God, both here in time and then again in eternity. So he goes away sad. And this would be a response, not of repentance, but of unrepentance um, and despair. You you even see this later on in the disciples. I, I mean, I, we can get lost in this rabbit hole. I don't want to go too far down or steal someone's thunder later, but this is the difference you see with Judas and with Peter later on. This absolute despair and utter, no one could love me and forgive me after what I've done, or I don't want to give up my stuff. I don't want, you know, this unrepentance versus God have mercy on me, a sinner. And so in the midst of this, we see an unrepentant response and if you see that as a disciple and you're looking for in the ancient world, the guy who has everything clearly is the most blessed. He's the guy whom God loves. He's the guy whom God favors. He has it all and he can do all things. You know, that's the contents of the ancient world. And if you see this guy go away and Jesus sort of startling words that, abruptly shut the door of heaven in his face, not because Christ hasn't called him to repentance, but because he refuses to hear that word. When you see that, it is easy uh, to despair, which will be the disciples' response. But before we get that, Jesus wants to make sure we understand what it is to lay up treasures versus what it is to be rich toward God. So he, he takes this sin of idolatry, of trusting in your stuff and loving the things of this world more than God. And he says how difficult it is for those to have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, you might think difficult. Okay, yeah, I, I could see that it would be hard to give up your stuff uh, and to love something else and to be utterly dependent upon someone else, especially in our 21st American context when we're in, we love to pride ourselves on independence and all of that good stuff and uh, and whatnot. But the fact of the matter is Jesus presses in harder. It's not just difficult. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the camel, the kingdom of God. Pastor Apple just 
you know, face words, not getting involved to the weird modern scholarships of cities and camels and needles through the city and all that stuff. Just the most proper referent that Jesus speaks. It's going to sound a little bit gross, but just indulge me. Even if I were to be able to put a camel in a blender and grind it up, it still would not fit through the eye of a needle. So not just... They didn't even have blenders back then, Pastor Philippe. I know. I know. My 21st century context. What can I say? I'm a product of it. (laughs) But, But even if you were to do that, you couldn't enter the kingdom of God. So not just difficult impossible. And that's where the disciples end up. And that's where Christ is guiding them, which is why there's no wiggle room here. It's why I don't like to even get into the modern scholarship. Oh, it's just a little entrance to the city and the camel has to get down on the knees. No, 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 no. Then why do we have the the despairing of the disciples? It is impossible, right? So so this impossibility talk is is most proper to the text. So, sure. And I appreciate the image. And just briefly, and I, I maybe alluded to this slightly in, earlier in what I was saying, but I'd like to hear your thoughts a little more on this. How how do Jesus' words in verses 24 and 25 of this text inform our Christian attitude toward wealth and money in our day and age so that we don't fall off on either of those sides, the, the self-righteous side, certainly, but also maybe, and maybe this is where our temptation lies more today, is not falling off on the side of, hey, I've got this wealth and it's really not a big deal. How how do Jesus' words about the impossibility, as you said, how does that inform our attitude toward wealth and riches? Sure. So the different temptations there being before us, I do think we we lay heavy on and we get the not to love the the things of this world more than the things of God. But the more you accumulate and the more you see the conflicts in the world, especially today with rising prices, with wars and rumors of wars and famines and all of these different things, the more you have temptation to despair and to think, I actually need to start stockpiling stuff. I need to start doing these sorts of things. And that alone is a danger because that way of thinking, well, I don't trust in it, but I I need to be wise. I need to be prudent. Borders on and can easily border on if I don't do this, I'm not going to have anything. I'm not going to have a retirement. I'm not going to have a life. I'm not going to have anything. And that mindset is a posture, not of hum- humility, but of one of, of shrewd pride. I will say it like that, shrewd pride, because not um, shrewd in the, in the good sense, but shrewd in the fact that um, I am beginning down the road of, unless I take action, I will have nothing rather than trusting that my heavenly father knows what I need and he works through means. So if I lose my job tomorrow, and I would say it's probably the same where you are, I have a, a cloud of witnesses that surround me, that love me, that would uh, be called the church, the fellow saints of the living God who love one another, who who would help me, who would care for me, not only speaking and praying for me, but perhaps a little bit financially or things like that. I mean, I am blown away how many times I, in my own sinful, idolatrous ways, think, oh, my God, and yet the Lord turns it all on its head, and I have to end up thinking at the end of the day, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, because that was stupid. I I went down a road that I shouldn't have gone down thinking that, oh, I'm not trusting in these things, but I ended up doing it anyway. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's a that's a helpful answer, Pastor Philippek. And again, I think it leads us into what the disciples do ask. They hear this impossibility, like, well, if this guy can't get in, then who can? And Jesus speaks very comforting words in verse 27. What is impossible with men is possible with God. Take us into that interaction. Absolutely. So that word of God did not get heard by the rich young ruler. But the disciples who were previously preventing children from entering into the kingdom of God, who had themselves presented a posture of unrepentance and self-righteousness and self-dependency, are now by the word of the Lord crushed and brought to repentance by Christ's word and by Christ's spirit. And seeing all that has gone on and hearing the word and watching the one who is supposed to be the most blessed by God, because he's got all the stuff in this life, walk away they too despair. Who then can be saved? As if to say, if that guy's not getting in with all his stuff and all his blessings and, and all of the things that he's got from God, then, then there's no hope for us. And that's when Jesus essentially says, um, you're right. <laughs> what is impossible with men? It, you're right. It is impossible. With men and, and your own self-righteousness and, and looking at all this stuff and thinking, ah, and now being empty, you're absolutely right. It is impossible with men. But what is impossible with men is possible with God. And that's the entire point of this all. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Be like children. Be like the tax collector. Be utterly dependent upon God and God alone for the things of this world and for your eternal life. Do not take pride in or think for yourself for one minute that you've done any of the stuff that you have to establish what you have in this world. And do not rely on what you have to be declared righteous before God. For all this stuff can be stripped away from you by the cold hand of death, just like it was with a man who built barns in Luke 12. So don't lay up treasures for yourself. Rather, realize that the only way that any of you are getting into heaven, the only way anyone gets to come near to the kingdom of God is by grace. And the grace looks like this, that God entered into the flesh born of a woman, born under the law to redeem us who are under the law. I mean, this is the brilliance of Luke's gospel. We don't get, we don't get this in Matthew. We don't get this in Mark or John. And what don't we get? We don't get Gabriel coming to Mary. We don't get the, the child who is born in this. That's only Luke. And all that we know of that is from Luke. And it is beautiful because it sets before our eyes that the kingdom came as an infant, even in the womb and grew up. And it's for all people. And the only way that the kingdom comes near to you is if he chooses to enter into the flesh, if he chooses to suffer, if he chooses to die, if he chooses to rise and to bestow on you all that is his, to place his yoke upon you, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and to take your yoke upon him, suffering, pain, and death. I'm really glad that you connected that verse there in Luke 18 with the verse from Luke 1, where it, it appears on the lips of Gabriel in connection with the incarnation of our Lord. How this this text about you know, what is impossible with men is possible with God. 
is intended to be that specific, what God does to bring about our salvation through his son, Jesus Christ, starting with his incarnation, leading to his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, which is what Jesus is about to talk about in the very next text, by the way, in, in Luke eight thirty one and following. So, I, I mean, I, just that very specific nature of what this means is so huge. And the way that Luke can, ties these two together is, is absolutely beautiful. Pastor Philippic, then Peter, of course, it's Peter, speaks up. And, and he says, well, Jesus, you know, we left our homes. We, we've done some some selling of some stuff, it seems. Uh, we followed you. What, what about us? And Jesus responds, take us into this last interaction between Peter and then Jesus responds to it. So this then now having kind of worked through the text and even relying on James 2 a little bit and situation situating this conversation within those two very important guides for us that we have. Makes sense. The emphasis on the first part was come and follow me. That was the big thing. And how is that following evidenced? Well, by selling everything that you have, that, that fruit of faith. So now that that posture occurs by the disciples of repentance and faith. And Jesus assures them that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There is Jesus who stands before them and loves them and forgives them. Now, verse 28 can also be seen in light of the fruits of that faith that has been born in their heart by the living word of God preached and by the spirit of God living and active in that word toward the disciples. So Peter just cries out, we have left everything, you know, to follow you. And then the Lord doesn't like rebuke him on that. He's like, well, see, now you're trusting in self-righteousness, which is why it's important to understand those two guides to start with that we talked about self-righteousness and then actually selling everything, what that, what that all entails. He affirms that you will have your reward. You do trust in me and your reward, um, anybody, not just you, but anybody who's left house, wife, mother, brothers, parents, children for my sake, who, who, who's lost what's, what the world would call valuable and rich and what life is supposed to be about, um, will not receive you know, many times more in the age to come. So all of these relationships, even that are are falling apart because, quite frankly, you believe in Jesus and this is father against mother, your um, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother. All these relationships that are crumbling because someone believes in Jesus and someone was is absolutely against the kingdom of God. They are receiving many times over in their own brothers and sisters in Christ in the church, which they are being called, gathered, and enlightened by that same spirit, by that same Lord. So that Jesus affirms um, the confession of faith of the disciples saying, you will have your treasures in heaven. You have me and having me who is the head, you have the body as well, the fellow Christians. Pastor Philippeck, we have about three minutes here on the morning as we wrap this text from Luke 18 up. Help us to, to remember everything that Jesus has taught and to give us the good news from Luke 18. Absolutely. So in this time together in Luke 18, 15 through 30, we, we've covered a lot. We've covered quite a bit about children and rich young rulers and idolatry and giving up possessions and all of these different things. But really what has been covered is very simple. And what has been covered is that Jesus, the kingdom of God comes near 
And when he comes near in the flesh through the incarnation, Gabriel and Mary, he begins to encounter all of the fallen creation. And in encountering all of the fallen creation, Jesus does not desire the death of a sinner, but that all would turn, including little children, including tax collectors, including Pharisees, including disciples, including rich young rulers. So Jesus gives to each one what they need, himself and his word. Sometimes it's a word of hard law to show them that they in fact are self-righteous and they need to repent. And sometimes it is a word of sweet gospel to those who are despairing, like they have nothing at all and they can do nothing and the kingdom is being lost. But Jesus assures them, no, you have the kingdom for I am standing before you and by grace, I give you all that I have. But whether it is a word of law or whether it is a word of gospel, it is the same word, the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who came in the flesh to save all nations, all people from infants to adults that they may not cling to themselves, but cling to Jesus for what is impossible with man, earning salvation, earning heaven, pleasing God, is actually possible in the one who bore our sins unto death and clothed us with his own perfection, his own beauty, his own righteousness, his own holiness, that he himself won on the cross and in the empty tomb so that all may call upon him and all calling upon him might receive the salvation of their bodies and souls. Pastor Adam Filipek is pastor at Holy Cross and Emmanuel Lutheran Churches, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota, helping us today with Luke chapter 18, verses 15 to 30. Pastor Filipek, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Luke chapter 18 or any of the gospel according to St. Luke, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.